Welcome back. Hour four of the WGN Radio Theater. Just a few minutes. We'll tune in to the conclusion to Abbott and Costello. Then we'll hear the Mole Mystery Theater. Want to remind everyone listening, we have a website for this show, WGNRadioTheater.com. Check it out. Make sure you get your five free classic radio shows at our website, 100radioshows.com. And of course, check out the Classic Radio Club. That's our other website, classicradioclub.com. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, it's Abbott and Costello and the Mole Mystery Theater. Stick around. Hour four of the WGN Radio Theater. My co-host Lisa Wolf and I are here every Saturday night from 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning. We have five hours on the air here, five straight hours. It's great. What an opportunity to bring our listeners all these fun classic radio shows. We jam eight shows into that five hours. We hope you are enjoying our new format. Now, in this hour, it's uh, the conclusion to Abbott and Costello. We began listening to this 1943 broadcast in our last hour. So let's pick it up right where we left off. The conclusion now to the Abbott and Costello show. Is that better? That's much better. Wait until you get home. Ah! Costello! That's all. Cancel my order. Well, you lost Mrs. Niles' order, Costello. You'll have to change your slip. I can't, Abbott. What do you mean you can't change your slip? I'm not wearing any. Oh, <laughs> Oh, pardon me. Where do I find Lou Costello? That ain't me. (laughs) Pardon me. Where do I find Lou Costello? Here I am, over by the pickle barrel. Well, raise your hand so I'll know which one is you. (laughs) Hey, Abbott, who is this fresh dame? Costello. Don't you recognize her? Lynn Barry. (laughs) Gee, Miss Barry, how did you ever know, and how did you ever find me in this butcher shop? Where else would I look for a fat meatball? here, Costello. I'm supposed to do a play on your program tonight. Where do you expect to put it on? In this butcher shop? And why not? Lots of plays were done about butcher shops. Did you ever hear of Hamlet? The Merchant of Venison? <laughs> you ever hear of Abe's Irish Roast? Oh, come on. That's ridiculous. Oh, yeah? Ridiculous, huh? How about the story about a hog? Pygmalion. Oh, that's crazy. Crazy, huh? They even wrote a great picture about cows. What picture? What out canal dairy? <laughs> Boy, did I milk that one. Come to think of it, how about your last picture? Hit the eyes. There was no meat in that one. I don't know. I saw two hands in it. <laughs> now, wait a minute, Lynn. Don't pay any attention to Costello. He isn't very B-R-I-G-H-T. Yes, he does appear to be rather S-T-U-P-I-D. I heard that. What do you think I am, a D-O-P-P? <laughs> Listen, Mr. Abbott, what about this play? Well, Lynn, it's an original play, and Costello will be your leading man. Costello? He could never play that part. Why not? My leading man must be able to brush me into his arms, sweep me off, his, off my feet, and carry me away. You don't want a leading man. You want a street cleaner. <laughs> Costello, that's no way to talk to our guest. Can't you be nice? Yes. Miss Barry, if you'll do this play with me in the butcher shop, I'll take you out after the broadcast. We'll go for a drive. But, Lou, there's no more pleasure driving. Yeah, but there's still pleasure parking. Ah. (laughs) Who wants to park in a coop with a droop? Your technique is all wrong, Costello. If you want to take out a beautiful girl like Lynn Barry, the first thing to do is hire a limousine. And chauffeur. 
A Rolls Royce, of course. Then you buy me flowers. Orchids, naturally. Then cocktails at the Windsor House. Dinner at Romanoff. With caviar. And champagne. Then tickets for the theater. First row. After that, you make the rounds of the nightclub. Winding up at the Trocadero. Ah, then you get into your limousine again and drive down Wilshire Boulevard. Stop the car! Stop the car! What for? I want to stop at the finance company and make a loan. Ah. Costello, we're all ready to do your play. What's it all about? Oh, it's a great story, Abbott. It's about Buffalo Bill and the Wild West. Can you play a Western gal, Miss Barry? Can I play a Western gal? Why, where I come from, they all call me Tex. Where you all come from, Tex? Oklahoma. (laughs) Just a second, Costello. Since when are you a Western character? Are you kidding, partner? What used to call me Six-Gun Costello? But I had to change it to Two-Gun. Why? Of course, with six guns, every time I took a step, my pants fell down. Yuck, 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 yuck. That's another character for you. Well, six gun, I'll agree to play the part. Sounds fun, squaw to me. What's that? I said it sounds fun, squaw. Oh, fun, squaw. I used to hunt bar down there every year. Yeah. All right, look, I don't believe... I don't believe all this, Costello. Oh, yeah! Ah, no, 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 no. You don't know anything about the West. Oh, no. I was raised on a dud ranch. You mean a dude ranch? I said dud. No women. (laughs) Must have been near no gals, Arizona. Har, har. Har and squad. Oh, no, look. Yeah! Look, uh, Lou, this is ridiculous. Must be a couple of Southern cowboys. Go ahead, Ken. Set the scene. Go ahead. And now... Somebody better set the scene. And now, our play of the evening, a saga of the adventurous West, The Life of Buffalo Bill, brought to you direct from Meyer's Butcher Shop and starring the Abbott and Costello Pickled Pig's Feet Players. (laughs) And as an extra special attraction, Meyer has goose liver at 10 cents a pound. As the scene opens, Buffalo Bill Costello and Buckskin Abbott are on the trail. Suddenly, a shot rings out. Hello? This is Meyer on the wire. Hello there, Meyer. What's new with Sophie? It's still a very slow process. Look, I can't talk to you now, Meyer. Call me back. This is the craziest play I ever heard. When do I come in? In just a second, Lynn. Costello and I are still on the trail approaching the camp of your father. Uh, Read your line, Costello. Oh, yeah. Buckskin, bud. It's getting dark, and we're going to run into a heap of trouble. Yes, Buffalo. We don't reach the stockade by sundown. The Indians will massacre us in the dark. They'll scalp us alive. Well, what are you going to do? We got to get word through to Gene Autry. Uh, Gene Autry? <laughs> shh, shh, Buffalo, look. Here comes an Indian chief. He's going to speak to us. How? Oh. Pula, gala, pala, mula. How? Mila, pula, ganda, munda, malabala. Uh, Costello, I didn't know you spoke Indian. I don't. Something went wrong with my typewriter. Uh, <laughs> me... Me welcome you. Me, Chief Flatfoot. Who gave you that name? Great White Father? No, Great White Draft Boy. Uh... <laughs> Chief Flatfoot, I'll come to marry your daughter, Moon Eyes. The one over there. Moon Eyes could not come. I am her sister, Cross Eyes. <laughs> Me glad to meet you. Greetings, White Fish. Not fish, face. 
Greetings, fish face. I don't think she... I don't think she likes you, uh, Buffalo. Now, let me handle this. Look here, cross eyes. I want to marry you. Now, what do you say, gal? No marry you. Me marry the bicarbonate kid. The bicarbonate, bicarbonate kid? kid? Yes. Wild Bill Hiccup. <laughs> I used to know him as Hopalong Acidity. <laughs> then everything is settled. White man, you go. What's that? I've been an Indian scout for nigh on to 20 years. And you're the most despicable, obnoxious, incorrigible renegade that I've ever encountered. Them's hard words, Buffalo. Hard words? You're right. But I said them. <laughs> Buffalo Bill, you be careful what you say to my father. He's strong in the I chief. smell him. Yes, no. <laughs> He's strong. Me not wear shoes. Me not wear clothes. Me sleep in wind, rain, and snow. No roof. Me eat raw corn, raw meat, raw fish. You do all that? Yes, and I'm sick and tired of the whole thing. <laughs> oh, boy, what a play. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> well, Indian girl, I want you to marry me. It's no use. You cannot marry me unless you get my mother's consent. I've taken care of that, Cross Eyes. I married your mother... So now I'm your father. So listen, daughter. You have my consent to marry me as soon as I can get a divorce from your old lady, your mother. Now, wait a minute, Buffalo. The Indians are going to attack us. Me afraid, Buffalo. Don't worry, Cross Eyes. Get behind me. If you hear a shot, get in front of me. Look out. Here they come. Run for your lives. <laughs> It's me, Meyer. I'm back. Oh, boy, what a play. Costello, Abbott, Miss Barry, I want to thank you sincerely for watching my butcher shop while my wife, Sophie, is having a crisis. Gee, Meyer, well, tell me, what happened? You're such a day. Girls with white uniforms are rushing in and out. I'm walking up and down. I'm biting my nails. I couldn't eat nothing. But everything turned out wonderful. Sophie is resting up. We am so excited. Gosh, what a lucky fellow. Congratulations, Maya. Yeah, what was it, a boy or a girl? The most beautiful permanent babe you ever saw. Well, Lynn Barry, thanks for being our guest tonight. Just a minute, bud. Look, Costello, I want to know how that play ended before Maya came in. Oh, it was a terrific finish. I'm standing on a hill, all alone. 10,000 blood-curdling Indians are coming at me. How many? 1,000 screaming redskins. How many? 50 ferocious savages. How many? So I killed the old squaw. Foreign squaw! Let me out of here! Let us all out of here! Good night, folks. Good night, night, neighbors. Good night to everybody in Patterson, New Jersey. Good night, Uncle Marty. And that's the Abbott and Costello Show, December 16th, 1943. Bud Abbott, Lou Costello, special guest Lynn Berry. Also in that cast, Elvia Allman, and we heard Connie Haynes, singing star, and Freddie Rich and his orchestra, Ken Niles doing the announcing, originally sponsored by Camel Cigarettes, is heard on NBC. I love Abbott and Costello. I mean... 
they were just so family friendly and wholesome with their comedy. And I love the fact that um, they would do these uh, word plays, you know, it's just great. I mean, Abigail Stella was great and their movies were great too. Not only did they have the monster movies, you know, with the Wolfman and, you know, Frankenstein and stuff, right. but they had pictures where they were in the army and then they had like they met jack and the beanstalk you know and then they had their television show as well and i know antenna tv plays abbott costello quite a bit and we're happy that they do all right lisa you ready for mystery oh well sure you ready for mystery you like the the mysteries i know that you are a mystery i know mole mystery theater good series sponsored by sterling drugs they were the makers of mole shave cream and they brought this series to radio in 1943 the host was jeffrey barnes although jeffrey barnes was actually bernard lenro a crime fiction expert and connoisseur now this series came from new york so it had new york actors like Joseph Julian, Richard Widmark, Frank Lovejoy, and Seymour, Raymond Edward Johnson. It was billed as the best in mystery and detective fiction. It lasted on radio all the way until 1951. Time now for The Beckoning Fair One, starring Bernard Herman as our host. From June 5th, 1945, here uninterrupted now is the Mole Mystery Theater. Good evening. I'm Mr. Barrett, one of the characters in the Mole Mystery Theater, which follows right away. I just want to remind you that although next winter seems very far away, right now is the time to do something about next winter's heating problem. The government says that fuel of all types is going to be scarce, so if you want to keep warm, you should go to your dealer now and get whatever kind and quantity of fuel he can let you have. Also, you should check up on all your heating equipment and make sure that you're not wasting fuel. And lastly, protect your home against loss of heat by installing insulation and weather stripping. Those are the ways in which you can protect your home against next winter's cold. And now, the Mole Mystery Theater, presented by M-O-L-L-E. Mole, the brushless shaving cream that guards your tender skin with its special protective film. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jeffrey Barnes welcoming you to the program that presents the best in mystery and detective fiction. Tonight we bring you an unusual tale of the supernatural by Oliver Onions entitled The Beckoning Fair One. It is a gripping study in human terror, the eerie story of a strange rebellion and the terrible consequences that followed. So here it is. The Beckoning Fair One. My name is Paul Oleron. I'll tell it from the beginning, just the way it happened. I don't ask you to believe it. Just listen. I was working on my new novel, Romilly, when I decided to move. I looked over a couple of places and finally discovered one I liked. Of course, it's not a new house, Mr. Oleron, but we'll do the place over for you any color you like. They're certainly quaint-looking rooms, aren't they? Plenty of atmosphere here. (laughs) You writers will have your atmosphere. Uh 
Are you sure you won't reconsider about uh, taking the whole house, I mean? Mm. Hey, you never know who might rent the other floors, you know. Well, if you don't mind my saying so, Mr. Barrett, you're not likely to have many people interested in living in this old relic. Oh, it's not as bad as all that. But I rather like the idea of being the only tenant in this venerable mansion. Huh? Just as you like, Mr. Oleron. Leave it to me, Mr. Barrett. I'll make my corner of it cozy enough. <laughs> I was thoroughly pleased with my new quarters. There was an air of ancient charm about the place that appealed to my imagination. Then I discovered the handle in the window seat. That meant there was a box underneath. But the lid was stuck. I went to work on it with mallet and chisel. Paneling rang and vibrated. The whole house seemed to echo. Finally, I loosened the lid and tried it out. I drew out something soft and yielding, covered with dust. It was some kind of a large bag, triangular in shape. It had wide flaps and buckles. I couldn't imagine what it had been used for. Soon lost interest in it, depositing it in a corner of the room. Then I set about removing a large nail from the bottom of the lid. I spent the rest of the afternoon putting my manuscripts into the box. In the evening, Elsie Bengo paid me a visit. Elsie worked on a newspaper, and she was always enthusiastic over my work, especially the new novel, Rama. Well, Elsie, what do you think of the place? Oh, I don't know, Paul. I like the last place. In spite of the black ceiling and no water tap. How's Romney coming? Uh, not very well. Are you stuck? Can't seem to get on with it. Paul, would you like to read me some of it? You don't understand, Elsie. I haven't done any more on it. Not a line. Paul, you're joking. Ah. Perfectly serious. I'm even considering scrapping the whole 15 chapters and starting over. Making Romilly a different type of woman. You're really going to scrap those 15 chapters? You seem more concerned about it than I am. Well, maybe I am. That's what you've been working for almost within your reach. A novel that'll make you famous. You still have a lot of confidence in Romilly, don't you? And now you just want to scrap the whole thing. Paul, it's unforgivable. Oh, what's the difference, Elsie? The important thing is I'm happier here than I've been for a long time. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to let you. It's just that... But I feel so close to Romilly. in the corner here? Suppose you tell me. Why, it's a harp cover. What? It's a harp cover. It's been used to wrap up a harp before putting it into its case. Oh, it must be a very old one. Oh, thanks for solving my mystery. Paul? Hmm? Paul, who lives in the rest of this house? Nobody. I'm the only tenant. Paul? Yes? May I tell you frankly what I feel about this place? By all means. You'll never work here. <laughs> why on earth not? I don't know why. But you'll never finish Romilly here. That night, I sat by my fire, pondering over Elsie's prophecy. I looked around the room. Filled me with a sense of calm I'd never known before. 
more I thought about Elsie Bengo, the more I became convinced I would have to destroy those 15 chapters. Unwittingly, I'd put too much of Elsie into my character of Romilly. And those qualities I disliked in Elsie Bengo, I found objectionable in Romilly. Then I became aware of the dripping water tap in the kitchen. It had a tinkling range of three notes on which it seemed to play a tune. In my mind's eye, I could see the gathering of each drop, a little tremble on the lip of the tap, and the tiny musical sound of its fall. I found myself waiting to hear each drop over and over again. Grayson, the best. You sure I'm not putting you out any, asking you to come over every morning and get my breakfast? Huh? I don't mind it a bit. What's a caretaker's wife for if not to take care of things? <laughs> you hear me, but that's a very old tune, Miss O'Blon. I haven't heard it in these 40 years. Huh? What tune? Oh, the one you come in. It's called the Beckon and Fair one. Really? Uh, sing it for me. <laughs> hear me, I haven't got any voice, but if you... Oh, and it went something like this. Very, very pretty. <laughs> they do say it was sung to a harp. The tune must be at least a hundred years old. And and I was humming it? <laughs> Indeed you were. Huh. This is odd. I, I thought I heard that tune last night. Dripping from the kitchen faucet. <laughs> oh, silly idea. A faucet singing. <laughs> As time passed, I became more and more attached to my apartment. But Elsie Bengo did not share my enthusiasm. It just doesn't belong to today at all, Paul. No, this is a dead house. Everything in it reeks of decay. That's all in the point of view, isn't it, Elsie? Is Romilly coming any better? I think she is. I'm laying the foundations of her new character. I'll begin the actual writing soon. You mean you discarded the old Romilly? Yes. Oh, is the manuscript? In the window box. What do you want it for? I want to read you something. Bring you back to your senses. Maybe you hear someone else read. Oh! What's the matter, Elsie? Nothing. I just cut my finger. You ought to take that nail out of the lid, Paul. But I thought I did. Oh, oh here, let me bandage it. Please don't worry about it, Paul. It's really a little scratch. Look, would you walk me down to the bus? It'll do you good to get out for a breath of fresh air. I, I can't, Elsie. I really must get down to work. No. No, that isn't why you won't go out. Oh, Paul, move out of here. Everything's wrong with this place. Oh, Elsie, please. Here, uh, let me see you to the door. My foot through. Oh, you poor girl. It's so funny. Elsie. 
Elsie. First this nail and now this step. Oh, oh Lord, it's so funny. Elsie, let me help you. No, no, don't let me go. Elsie. Please, please let me go away. I'm not wanted here. Alone that night before my fireplace, I found myself considering Elsie's two accidents. Thought I'd removed that nail from the lid of the window box. But then I couldn't be too certain I hadn't left a bit of it still in the wood. And the staircase was an old one. Though it seemed strong enough to me, the step might have collapsed under anybody. Poor Elsie simply happened to be the victim. imagination was beginning to play tricks with me. I actually fancied I heard my name in the sound of the dripping water tap. <laughs> I, I laughed at myself. That's what came of too much thinking. Suddenly, I stopped laughing. I heard a rustling sound. It seemed to be coming from the center of the room. For a moment, I couldn't identify it. Long, sweeping sound. A faint cracking in it. What is it? What's there? Who's there? That sound. It's a woman. Combing her hair. I've got to get out of here. I fled the house. I walked for hours in the cold, clear night. Gradually, my fear left me. I began to laugh at myself. But of course I hadn't removed that nail. Of course the wood in that step had been rotted through. As for the invisible woman brushing her hair, I'd been dreaming too much, that was all. It was morning by the time I got back to the house. I hadn't been to bed at all. I was tired. I found Mrs. Grayson, the caretaker's wife, waiting for me in my room. I took the liberty of coming in, Mr. Oran, seeing as the door was open and you weren't home. I've been out for a walk. You needn't bother about breakfast this morning, Miss Grayson. I'm not hungry. From now on, Mr. Oran, you'll have to make other arrangements for getting your breakfast. What? I won't be setting foot inside your door again. Why? What's the matter? I'm a respectable woman, and I'll not be serving a man who makes a habit of entertaining ladies in his room. Ladies? I'll make your bed for you this last time. Make up my bed? That's a good one. I, I haven't been to bed yet. I haven't been here all night. No? Well, somebody spent the night here, Mr. Oleron, because your bed's been slept in. Well, mystery fans... Do you think Paul Oleron's house is really haunted? Or is he bewitched by his own imagination? And is there anything he can do to save himself? Yes, Mr. Barnes, there is. Listen to me. I was once bewitched, but I was saved by a magic word. A magic word? What word? Listen. My face was bewitched. Every time I shaved, I used to get invisible little nicks and scrapes. But then I learned the magic word. Mole! Mole! 
<laughs> well, gentlemen, there is something magical about the way Mole protects your face against irritating little nicks and scrapes. But there's a common sense reason behind it. You see, Mole has a special protective film, a slick, smooth, moist film with more real body and substance than light, fluffy cream. Mole gives your razor something to ride on. Your razor rides along smoothly from the first stroke to the last without pulling or tugging at your whiskers. And then, your tender skin gets the very best of protection against aftershave burn and irritation. Mole is made with ingredients of assured quality. Ingredients that meet the official U.S. pharmacopoeia requirements for medical purity. So, gentlemen, try Mole. The brushless shaving cream that puts face protection first. And now back to Jeffrey Barnes and Act Two of The Beckoning Fair One. Paul Oleron, writer, had not been in his new living quarters long before strange things began to happen. Nails put themselves back into the wood. A leaking water tap played an old tune. And an invisible woman appalled Oleron's soul by combing her hair. He has just returned to his rooms after spending the night walking the streets and contemplating the beckoning fair one. I looked at the rumpled bed. The sheets bore a distinct impression as if somebody had lain on them. I knew that I hadn't been near the bed since Mrs. Grayson had made it the day before. I was face to face with it now. Something inhabited my room. But what? I was seized with a desire to know the thing, find out what it was. I lay down on the bed and tried to figure it out. But it's becoming clear to me now that the key lay in my half-written novel, Romilly. Or rather, in both Romillys, the old one and the proposed new one. Looking back over it, I realized there was almost passionate hatred in the way the new Romilly had supplanted the old... Somehow, all this was related to Elsie Bengo. One thing was certain. Elsie must not come inside this house again. That afternoon, I saw her coming up the walk. I hurried to meet her outside. I'm sorry, Elsie. I, I'm just going oh. out. I've got an appointment downtown. You want to walk along with me? Paul, you haven't any appointments. You just don't want me in the house. Well, I only wanted to tell you that everything's over between us. Oh, Elsie. Let me finish, Paul. Something strange is happening to you. Please, Elsie. But if you that... ever... If you ever need me, Paul, somehow I'll know it. And then I'll come. Sorry to bother you so late, Mr. Barrett, but something I've got to ask you. Oh, uh, glad to be of help, I can. Uh, as, as renting agent for the house, you'd know something about the previous tenant, wouldn't you? Uh, yes. The last tenant in your rooms was an artist by the name of Madley. He uh, seldom went out of the place. As a matter of fact, Madley died there under uh, rather peculiar circumstances. Yes? Uh, it was discovered at the post-mortem that there wasn't a particle of food in his stomach. Starved to death? No, he starved to death, all right. Only it wasn't because he didn't have any money. 
You see, they found a bank book in his room proving he had $10,000 in a New York bank. Suicide, then? By starvation. Hmm? It's rather an uncommon form of suicide, isn't it? Then... Then why? Why? I don't know, Mr. Oran. Nobody ever found out. I returned to the house. That there was a strange presence there, I was convinced. And now that I'd rid myself of Elsie Bengo, who had been the old inspiration for the character Romilly in my novel, I hoped to meet the beckoning fair one. She who was becoming the new inspiration. Once inside, I had to be calm. Convinced her that I didn't care whether she appeared or not. I lit a candle in the bedroom, drew down the blind, took off my coat, and stooped to get my slippers from under the bed. I straightened up. Reflected in the mirror, I saw a gleam of light in the center of the room. It moved up and down through the air. It was the reflection of the candle on my comb. And each of its downward movements was accompanied by a silky, crackling rustle. I went into the living room and returned with the manuscript of the old Romilly. The combing stopped immediately. I was no longer aware of the fair one's presence. <laughs> As I thought. She's just jealous. Night after night passed, and still I did not see her. My life became one passionate and consuming desire to see the new Romilly, the new heroine of my novel, who had fastened herself on my brain in the guise of the beckoning fair one. Yes, sir. What can I do for you? I want a bouquet of roses. Yes, sir. Got some beauties today. Beauties for a beautiful lady, huh? Here's a nice bouquet. That one will do. Nothing like roses to win the heart of the fair one, eh? <laughs> What'd you say? Uh, well, I was just making conversation. You said something about the fair one. Just a manner of speaking, sir. I didn't mean any offense. Uh, of course not. I, I'm sorry. I'll take those flowers now, and I want you to deliver a bouquet of these to my house every morning for the next two weeks. <laughs> I'd made the arrangements with the florist so I wouldn't have to leave the house at all. I hoped the flowers would unbend her coy, stubborn will. They did no good. I lost track of the days. I walked through my rooms with slippered feet now, treading softly, afraid of frightening her away. I kept the windows shut and the crimson blinds down. In this enticing, flower-laden place, I waited for the beckoning fair one. searched my mind for some reason why she held herself back from me. Suddenly it came to me. The manuscript of the old Romilly, those 15 chapters. I was a fool to think that the new Romilly would show herself to me as long as there existed evidence of my former attachment. 
I took the manuscript from the window box and was about to throw it into the fire. No! Who's there? It's Elsie. Go away. I, I can't see you now. Please let me in, Paul. No. Paul, you're in trouble. I know you are. I'm all right. Go away. Paul, I only want to help. I promised I'd come if you needed me. Paul. Paul. Please answer me. Paul. I didn't answer. Paul. She was a fool. Coming here where she was not wanted. Why didn't she leave me alone? Her voice only irritated me. Soon her calling stopped. I heard her footsteps going down the stairs. destroyed the manuscript of my old novel, Romilly, page by page. Then I lay down to wait again. How long, how many days, I don't know. I was beyond the world of calendars and clocks. Gradually, the strength drained from my body. I gazed vacantly at the star-patterned ceiling. Sometimes I had a fleeting recollection of a novel to be written... It was like something far off. Sometimes I thought about Madley, the previous tenant who had lived here before me, and I wondered... I wondered whether she had played her coy game with him. Paul. Uh, Paul. Uh, Elsie. How, how did you get in here? Paul, listen to me. You're not well, darling. Let me take care of you. Uh, I said I'd come when you needed me, Paul. second floor, you've got four big rooms. Plenty of light and air. Certainly a quaint-looking place. Say, isn't this the part of the house where that writer lived? The one who's being executed tonight? <clears throat> yes, yes, this is it. What was the name of that girl he murdered? Elsie Bengo. Uh, of course, it's not a new house, but we'll be glad to do the place over for you. Uh, the water tap leaks slightly. But it won't bother you. <laughs> And so we have heard how the strange voice of an unseen woman drove Paul Oleron to commit a murder. Yes, Mr. Barnes, the voice gave him evil advice. But now, listen to a voice that gives helpful advice. Mole. Mole. Mole puts face protection first. Yes, gentlemen, Mole does put face protection first. It guards your face against annoying little nicks and scrapes because it's got a special protective film, a slick, smooth film with plenty of real body and substance. Mole gives your razor something to ride on, 
Your razor rides along smoothly from the first stroke to the last, and you get a close, clean shave without any pulling or tugging at your whiskers. You'll find that your shaves will get better, better, and better when you use M-O-L-L-E. Mole, the brushless shaving cream that puts face protection first. This is Jeffrey Barnes again, ladies and gentlemen, inviting you to be with us next week when we will bring you L.A.G. Strong's dramatic story of premeditated murder entitled Breakdown. A man is caught in the complicated web of a love triangle, which he realizes is slowly driving him insane. He attempts to solve his problem with a carefully planned murder, but it comes to a disastrous climax. So, mystery fans, be sure to listen next week to L.A.G. Strong's compelling adventure in crime... Breakdown. The original music for the Mole Mystery Theater is composed and conducted by Jack Miller. The Beckoning Fair One was written by Oliver Onions and adapted for radio by Eric Arthur. Until next Tuesday, this is Dan Seymour saying good night and good shaving with the brushless shaving cream that puts face protection first. Mole. Are Mole Hills Mountains to you? Are you too tired, too weary to face daily problems? Then listen. Doctors may find that your fatigue is caused by a borderline anemia. Yes, a borderline anemia resulting from a ferronutritional deficiency of the blood. Decide now to throw off depressing fatigue with the help of Iron Eyes Yeast Tablets. They're formulated to overcome borderline anemia by helping to build up red blood cells. Take IY, Iron Eyes Yeast Tablet, to get more vigor, more drive, more energy. This is the National Broadcasting Company. And that's the Mole Mystery Theater, June 5th, 1945, The Beckoning Fair One, sponsored by Mole Shave Cream. I know that's your, one of your favorite shave creams. Well, it feels good on my cheeks and my chin especially. Your chinny chin chin. Mm -hmm. Also, ironized yeast. Uh, ironized yeast was like a tablet you would take if you were feeling run down, you know. Right. And they were a sponsor for a while for, uh, for Lights Out, ironized yeast. You heard Bernard Lenro there as our host, Jeffrey Barnes. Dan Seymour doing the announcing, as heard on NBC, the Mole Mystery Theater. Let's take a quick break, then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. You know, we have a great museum right here in Chicago, the Museum of Broadcast Communications. And I'd like to invite you to become a member. There's all kinds of great things you'll get, right, Lisa? Right. You can experience the museum from wherever you live. You can support it with $49 a year. And with $49, you get free unlimited museum admission. You get exhibition previews. You get a free monthly newsletter, a discount at the museum store, invitations to all sorts of member events, and you get 70 free radio shows emailed to you just for being a member of the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Wow, classic radio shows, right. huh? what 70 a, of them? I was going to say, what a great merger between the museum and classic radio. You can check it all out at their website, which is museum.com. 
TV. Yep, museum.tv. Join the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Support a great cause. When we come back from news, it's gangbusters from 1946. Then it's Fibber McGee and Molly in a quarter hour episode from 1954. That's coming your way right after the news. Welcome back to the WGN Radio Theater, Hour 5. In this hour, it's Gangbusters from 1946. And then we'll tune into a quarter-hour episode of Fibber, McGee, and Molly going back to 1954. Jim and Marion Jordan as Fibber, McGee, and Molly. You know, Lisa, that show tried to make the transition to television. It was one show that was super, super popular right. on radio. I mean, it started in the 30s, lasted all the way to the 19, middle 90s. 1950s. Imagine this. Super successful on radio. And then it tried to make a transition to television. Bombed. I mean, literally bombed. It just didn't work in a visual medium. Kind of interesting. I mean, you know, another show that didn't work in a visual medium was the Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy show. Worked on radio. Now you would think, okay, a ventriloquist, right. a ventriloquist, it should work on television. Right. That doesn't even make sense. Absolute, complete opposite. Right. It was a huge, huge hit. On radio. And then, you know, he thought, you know, Edgar Bergen thought, well, let's make the transition bombed on TV. Maybe because, you know, you could see his lips moving. I don't know. I don't even know why it worked on radio, but it absolutely does. It's it's really an enigma. Yeah. Why it worked so well. In fact, it was one of the biggest shows on radio. Ah, the mysteries of these classic radio shows. When we come back from this short break, it's Gangbusters and Fibber McGee and Molly. Stick around. Hour 5 of the WGN Radio Theater, Lisa Wolf and I, are here every Saturday night, 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning. Our executive producer, the great Mike Gastella. And in this hour, we're going to start things off with Gangbusters. Now, this was a government drama created by Phillips H. Lord way back in 1935. It was known as the only national program that brings you authentic police case histories. Now, it dramatized FBI closed cases in close association with the bureau director, J. Edgar Hoover. The opening of each show began with a barrage of loud sound effects shrill police whistles, convicts marching, police sirens, machine guns firing, tires squealing. It led to the popular catchphrase, coming on like gangbusters. Now, you don't hear that much, you know, you don't hear that catchphrase much anymore. But back in the 40s and 1950s, they would say, boy, he's coming on like gangbusters, you know, (laughs) right? I think that's still acceptable today. It is, but people, you know, it's a little antiquated for today. You know, we're a little antiquated. We are, (laughs) especially me. It aired on radio until 1957. Had a long run. I mean, 1935 to 1957. Let's hope we have a 22-year run here on WGN. I'm counting on it, Carl. Now, uh, there was a TV version premiered in 1952, hosted for a time by Chester Morris who played Boston Blackie in the movies. We have a broadcast of Gangbusters for you now from May 11th, 1946. It's called The Battle of Alcatraz. And the star of the show is Mercedes McCambridge. I just love the whole idea of Mercedes McCambridge with this sweet, innocent voice that she had, as you'll hear on this broadcast, later played the demon, the voice of the demon in the movie, The Exorcist. 
she, know, it's I mean, she was an amazing vocal actress and, of course, a live-action actress. She was in a lot of movies and TV shows as well. Here, uninterrupted now, is Gangbusters. And now, Gangbusters! Gangbusters, presented in cooperation with police and federal law enforcement departments throughout the United States. The only national program that brings you authentic police case histories. against Alcatraz, seventh circle of hell, where 200 devilish minds seize with but a single thought, where a lifetime is not too long to plot, but at which honest men can look and safely say, leave every hope behind, ye who enter here. Now, tonight's gangbusters case. A special presentation. Inside facts, dramatized for the first time on the Battle of Alcatraz. Just one week ago, the law-abiding citizens of America, slowly recovering from four long years of war, were shocked to hear of a new battle on a 12-acre island in San Francisco Bay. The Battle of Alcatraz. Alcatraz. So named in 1775 by the Spanish settlers of California, Isla de Alcatraces, the island of the pelican, a heap of rocks jutting up into the Golden Gate, a mile and a half northeast of San Francisco's famous waterfront district. For nearly 100 years, the island of the Pelicans has been a prison. First, as disciplinary barracks for military offenders of the United States Army. For the last 13 years, the place of confinement selected by the United States Department of Justice for discipline, segregation, punishment of the most desperate and hopelessly incorrigible criminals. For 280 convicts, the rock is the last stop before hell. Last week, there was trouble on the rock. Five dead, 16 wounded. Was the revolt of the nation's most desperate criminal spontaneous? Was it the result of a moment's opportunity? Or was it the result of years of meticulous planning? Four years ago, in the summer of 1942 at another federal penitentiary on McNeil Island in the state of Washington. A veteran convict, a notorious dealer in accurate grapevine information, walked up to a guard who was on duty in the prison kitchen. You better get back to slicing those apples, Tom. Yeah, sure, but... Can I say a word to you, mister? Okay. What is it? Hey, look. I got the dope. You're up for a transfer to Alcatraz. There'll be a guard on the rock. So what? You're headed for trouble. What gives you that idea? I wouldn't be telling you, except you've been a pretty square guy with us cons. Or maybe I can do you a favor. Don't take the job on the rock, mister. No? Why not? Don't take it, that's all. There'll be a big break there. Maybe a long time coming, but... When it does, it'll be a regular massacre. A massacre? <laughs> Don't make me laugh. A massacre on the rock? Impossible. Alcatraz is escape-proof. Silence at all times in the cell house. Cell bars of tool-proof alloys. Photoelectric cells that detect even the smallest pin. Machine guns. Concrete walls. A 20-foot cyclone fence topped with barbed wire. Then the water. 
A mile of treacherous tidal currents, you see. Alcatraz is escape-proof. What makes you think so, bud? Let me tell you something. That con up at McNeil Island has the right dope. He ought to get a knife between the ribs for cracking his yet. Shut up, will you? I'm telling this guy something. Okay, okay. You see this big building right next to the water? We figure once we get out and take care of the tower guards, we'll have our pick of the boats at the dock. Oh, you're wasting your time. No one escapes from Alcatraz. You couldn't even begin. Wasting our time, huh? We got lots of it to waste. What's time? And where could we begin? Show him the handkerchief. Yeah. Yeah, here it is. See that handkerchief? That little rag. That's what we'll use to crank out of Alcatraz. That's what'll whip your machine guns and the steel bars and the electric eyes. We'll tie a knot in the handkerchief. We'll use it to reach through the bars and pick up a pair of pliers from a workman's kit. Oh, it'll take time, lots of time. But we got plenty of time. And with the pliers, we loosen some plumbing. And when we get ready to use the pipes, we put them all together with the pliers. And we got a nice little gadget that spreads bars like they was paper. Also a nice little gadget to bump some guards over the skull. Okay. Well, here's how we got it figured. You see, this big cell house has four cell blocks. A, B, C, and D running the whole length of the building. Now, the only guy with guns is a guard that walks in what they call a gun gallery. And this gun gallery runs across the end of the cell house. And it's really a catwalk stuck on the end of the building, but separated from the cell tiers by iron bars. Well, this guard walks back and forth in the gun gallery, looking things over. We take care of this guard, sitting pretty. Don't forget about the gun. Yeah. This guard is always carrying a rifle and a sweet little forty-five automatic. Now, Bernie Coy and another con got the job sweeping up the corridors between the cell block and the gun gallery. Once in a while, Coy manages to climb up and give the bars to the gun gallery a little spread so they can squeeze through. Now, the idea is get the guns and stick up the floor guards who've got no guns. And it's all set. I guess it's around two in the afternoon that they're going to squeeze through and lay for this guard. It was a tight squeeze, Coy. I didn't think you'd make it. I did, didn't I? Boy, if I'd been waiting for this. As soon as the guard passes, I'll grab him, slug him, and I'll grab his guns. Shh. He's coming. Now. Hey, slug him, right? I'll get the cell block keys and let you other guys out. You got him? Yeah. I got the keys. Ah, I got the keys. Uh, get his guns, too. I'm going to make it all right. I'll let Tretz and you other guys out. Okay, come on. All right, come on. Shut up, you guys. Shut up. Okay, we'll get the key to the outside door. Tell me how crutches the thing's cooked, I say. All right. Cunningham has got having the key to let us outside the cell house. Okay, he didn't. We got his guns and we got a fighting chance. Well, I ain't giving up. Me neither. Okay. All right, would you? How do we wake it? All right. Make some noise so you and the other guards will come run and they won't expect nothing. Yeah, one of them ought to have the outside keys. A dozen or more dangerous criminals now have the appetizer to their meal of freedom. They're out of their cells and armed. But without the keys to the outside door, their chances of full freedom are hopeless, and they know it. 
In the meantime, the four o'clock shift of guards is in a locker room in the same building adjacent to the troubled Celsius. Changing into their uniforms, about to go on duty, these relief guards who carry no guns have no idea that a score or more desperate convicts are free and armed on the other side of a heavy steel door. Hold it, fellas. Huh? Quiet. Just a minute. What's up, Harry? Shh. Hear that noise through the door? Yeah, from the cell blocks. Yep. Come on. Let's have a look. All right. I'll get the door. It's quieted down. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Hey, look. It's first cell. It's empty. Hey, hey watch it. Watch it. They're loose. Oh. Right into the cell. Oh, they got me again. All right. The rest of you. I'm dead. Open that cell door, Coy. Okay. If those guards got the keys. Well, you guys start searching them. They all look dead. Yeah. Well, search them. If we're getting out, we need those keys. Hey, there's one still kicking. Let me add in. Hey, you. Oh. Give me the keys at the outside. I have no keys. Oh, you haven't, huh? Oh. That's for not having the keys, and this is for nothing. Hey, Kretzer. Yeah? The other guys ain't got no keys either. Huh? Oh, looks like we're cooked, guys. Maybe we'd better call it quits. Well... What do the rest of you guys say? No, no quits. Okay, we fight it out. We can't get out one way, we'll take the other, right? Well, I'm with you, Quitzer. Head up, boy, Tom. Who else? Help me okay. in. Okay. Let's think this out a little. From the warden, United States Penitentiary, Alcatraz Island, to the United States Navy, Coast Guard, and San Francisco Police Department... Serious trouble has broken out. Convicts are armed and at large in the cell house. I have issued a riot call and placed armed guards at strategic locations. Most of our officers are imprisoned in the cell house. 3.18 p.m. To the Commandant, San Francisco Naval Base. Subject, Alcatraz Riot. One, dispatch immediately one company U.S. Marines to assist warden... United States Penitentiary, Alcatraz Island. Two, assign all available patrol craft to surround and maintain constant vigilance, Alcatraz Island. Signed, Commandant, 12th Naval District. All Thursday night, May 2nd, the traces of the attackers and the ping of bullets of the besieged streak the sky over the Golden Gate. The battle rages without let-up. Residents of San Francisco lined the waterfront to see firsthand what they had heard in the special broadcasts and in the papers. People throng in fascination, for death is the label on each of the bullets which line the sky in blood red. On the great Golden Gate Bridge, a sailor and his girl edge to the railing. What are those red streaks? Fireworks? Those are the bullets, baby. Tracer bullets. Gee, there are a lot of them. I don't understand it. If they haven't got a chance, what are those convicts fighting for? I don't know, baby. They probably figure they'll get electrocuted or something anyhow, so maybe they'd rather do it this way. 
I wonder who they are. Not very nice to know. I guarantee you that. You know, I feel kind of sorry for them. Well, anyway, all those tracer bullets and everything, it's pretty. Yes, young lady, very pretty. And who are the men, those prisoners of other men, decent men? Who are those convicts trying to blast their way to a freedom that could mean nothing but more violence, more bloodshed? Those men for whom you feel kind of sorry. Listen. Joseph Paul Kretzer, murder. They also robbed banks, 15 or 16. I forget which. Myra and Edgar Thompson. I killed a cop. Morris Franklin Harvey. Me, I shot a cop too. Kidnapped another one. Bernard Paul Coy. I'm on the rock for robbing a bank. This is my fourth time over. Lawrence Kahn, murderer, kidnapper. Sam Shockley, kidnapper, bank robber, escape artist. Those are six of the men. Six of the ringleaders, six desperate killers. In a moment, you'll learn how they came to be inmates of the rock. Now, back to gangbusters and tonight's special dramatization of the Battle of Alcatraz. The list of 280 Alcatraz convicts recalls murder, bank robbery, kidnapping with each name. High up the list, and the murderer of Alcatraz guard, William H. Miller, stands... Joseph Paul Kretzer, Alcatraz, number 548. Wanted on warrants, charging more than a dozen bank robberies, Kretzer and a woman companion sped through the streets of Michigan City, Indiana, on the early morning of June 7, 1939. Aren't you going to make a run for it? Me? Run from the cops? <laughs> You're not going to let him take you. Watch. Give me that gun. I get it. Here he comes. Let's go, Bane. Right. <laughs> You think you killed him? I don't know, and I don't care. But every cop we meet is going to learn the same thing. Joe Crutcher's one guy, they're never going to stop. The Federal Bureau of Investigation traced Crutcher through acquaintances of this gun mall to an apartment on Chicago's north side and arrested him. He was sent to McNeil Island Penitentiary for 25 years. A year or so later, he escaped, but was recaptured. With his accomplice, Kretzer was in the anteroom of federal court in Tacoma, awaiting trial for escape. Be here for us in a minute, Kyle. Yeah, Kretzer? Look, I ain't going back to no solitary. Yeah? There'll be two of them. You take one and I'll take the other. Go for the guns. Hey, look, Kretzer, that's suicide. I'm so not... what? It's better than rotting away the rest of your life. Okay, I'm with you. Shh, shh, shh. They're coming. All right, Kretzer. All right, let's go. Okay, okay, don't rush it. Now! Save you! Get They've got no guns! All right, let's go. Right! Kretzer and his companion got only to the end of the corridor. There they were subdued by other federal officers. The United States Marshal, struck down by Kretzer, was killed by a blow to the head. Thus, Joseph Paul Kretzer came to Alcatraz for life, for murder. 
Bernard Paul Coy, number 415. I'm Coy. I'm a bank robber who didn't like being caught. They sent me to Leavenworth for 25 years. They expected me to sit down and wait those 25 years. I showed those guys I was too tough for Leavenworth. Thus, Bernard Paul Coy came to Alcatraz. Marvin Franklin Hubbard, number 645. I am Hubbard. I broke out of prison three times in Oklahoma and Idaho. The last time a cop tried to stop us near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Instead of the cop taking us in, we took the cop along. Then we ran into a bunch of cops. I shot one, but they nabbed us. Thus, Marvin Franklin Hubbard came to Alcatraz. Myron Edgar Thompson, number 729. I'm Thompson. I killed a cop, I kidnapped three people, and I broke out of jail eight times. You ever hear of Blackie Thompson? Well, he was a Texas bad man. He was my brother, see? The cops at Amarillo got him. I hate Amarillo cops. Yes, Myron Thompson claimed Blackie Thompson as his brother and swore vengeance on the Amarillo police. About a year ago, shortly after his last jailbreak, Thompson and a companion were driving toward Amarillo. See that curve right ahead there? Yeah, what about it, Thompson? Right there is where my brother Blackie Thompson was killed by the Amarillo cops. Yeah? Yeah. He shot the tires off his car. He jumped out, but the cops mowed him down. Had 30 slugs in him. Laying right there. I hate cops. But I hate Amarillo cops most. And one of them's in for the surprise of his life. Standing by our car, Thompson. He's a cop, all right. An Amarillo cop. Hey, you just keep going. We'll walk right up to him. Just a moment, you two. Oh, you speaking to us? You strangers here in Amarillo, aren't you? Oh, I, sure. Is this your car? Well, we borrowed it from a friend. It's got stolen plates on it. Oh, it has? Turn around. <laughs> I got no gun. We'll see about that. Hey, see, I, I told you. Yeah. You'll have to go up to headquarters anyway. Answer a few questions. Okay. Anything you say. Headquarters only up about three blocks. Uh, Amarillo seems to be a pretty good little town. Yeah, there's some nice folks in this town. This like... is a pistol in your ribs, copper. Where'd you get that gun? I got it, that's all. And I hate Amarillo cops. I got the wheel. Good. I'll shove him out, Cotton. Look, you dumped him right in front of the police station. Hey, I thought he searched you. Yeah, he did. He didn't find that pistol. Go on, give it the gas. Yeah. Well, Amarillo cop kills Blackie, and I kill an Amarillo cop. A short time later, Myron Edgar Thompson kidnapped a young woman and two servants and transported them across the New Mexico state line where he was apprehended. Thus, Myron Edgar Thompson came to Alcatraz. Those are the ringleaders. 
the desperate criminals who control most of the inside of Alcatraz's impregnable cell house, armed with a variety of weapons. Two hundred odd prisoners not participating in the revolt are herded into the prison yard under the guard of the machine guns of the United States Marines. Navy and Coast Guard boats patrol the island. Join the Navy and see the world. Yeah, and look at us. We circle Alcatraz so many times I'm dizzy already. And you'd think those cons would have better sense. They know they ain't got a chance. Yeah, they remind me of the Japs, in a way. Yeah? There they go again. Boy, look at them traces. Take my word for it. I'm glad I'm not up on that rock. I had enough people shooting at me the last four years. Thursday night, 7.35 p.m. Prisoners continue to hold possession. Two guards wounded in attempt to storm stronghold. Friday, 4.35 a.m., special load of fragmentation bombs and other modern warfare equipment arrives in Alcatraz Island from Benesis Arsenal. Guards launch vigorous assault. By mid-morning on Friday, the entrenched convicts are still holding out. The order is given to drill holes in the roof of the cell house over cell block D, built as escape-proof, but conversely, proving attack-proof. Through the roof, Alcatraz guards and Pacific veterans of the United States Marine Corps drop hand grenades. Getting pretty hot, boys. Yeah, I told you we shouldn't go through it. Yeah, this is better than the electric chair. You can say that again, Kretzer. Hey, outside the window. Got a bead on him. Good shot. Hey, that grenade was close. So close. The battle continues with varying intensity all Friday night. But Saturday morning dawns quietly over Alcatraz. The lull continues. It is deathly still. Shortly after noon, Saturday, May 4th, it is decided to storm the bastion. Armed guards, some flown in from Leavenworth and McNeil Island. Volunteers from San Quentin approach a steel door. None knows what inferno awaits him on the other side of that steel door. Open it up. Right. And they start shooting, men. Jump for cover. Okay. Let's go. Guns ready. There's one. Flop. <laughs> He's not moving. I'll crawl up to him. Kretzer. He's dead. There's two more dead. Hey, guards! We surrender! We give up! We give up! We give up! We surrender! We surrender! Quiet, all of you. All right, march out of here with your hands over your head. And then when you try the trick, you'll get shot. Now, come out. Thus ends the Battle of Alcatraz. Casualties, 
five dead, 16 seriously wounded. The dead, William H. Miller, guard. Lieutenant Harold P. Stites, guard. Those of Paul Kretzer, convict. Bernard Paul Coy, convict. Marvin Franklin Hubbard, convict. At least three other convicts face execution on charges of murder. A week later, Alcatraz Island, an establishment of the United States government for the confinement and punishment of the most dangerous criminals, with no attempt at rehabilitation, is quiet. Gangbusters is a Phillips H. Lord production. And that's Gangbusters from May 11, 1946, The Battle of Alcatraz, and that starred Mercedes McCambridge, produced and directed by Phillips H. Lord, is heard on ABC. Hope you enjoyed that. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been tuning in to Fibber, McGee, and Molly in five connected episodes, five uh, consecutive shows. This is the third in the series. It's from January 27th, 1954. Fibber's lawsuit is coming to trial. So let's check it all out. Here's Fibber, McGee, and Molly. The Fibber, McGee, and Molly Show. NBC and Richard Hudnut. Makers of the all-new Richard Hutnut Home Permanent with Beauty Rinse Neutralizer present Fibber McGee and Molly Transcribed. The show is written by Bill Leslie and Ralph Goodman and directed by Max Hutto. We'll join Fibber and Molly in just a moment. You know, it's often been said that it's worse to stand by and watch someone you love suffer than to go through it yourself. Well, that statement's very true, I think. Just imagine the young parents of a three-year-old who listened to the terrible diagnosis verdict, infantile paralysis. Thousands of parents every year hear that phrase. How much would you give to protect your child against infantile paralysis? There's no limit, is there? You'd give anything. Someday soon, science will find a cure. But it takes research, and this year your March of Dimes is forcing a showdown with this terrible disease. It's mass testing a trial vaccine in the exciting hope of proving this year that it can stop polio from crippling your child. Friends give these crucial tests, which are costing extra millions of dollars, an extra chance to succeed. Your help in paying the extra millions for polio prevention is urgently needed. Join the 1954 March of Dimes. Give extra for victory over polio. Send your dimes and dollars to your local March of Dimes headquarters as soon as you can. Hey, Molly, you home? In the kitchen, dearie. Where'd you go when you Give left? Give me a hand with these books, will you? Help me. I'm about to drop one of them. Ah, never mind. I'll put the others on the table here. Where'd you get those enormous books, and what are they? You didn't buy a set of encyclopedias again. Nope, I've been to the library, kiddo. Law books. Today's the day my lawsuit comes up in court, you know. I want to be prepared. Lawsuit? You don't mean that poor little man who accidentally broke the picket on our back fence a month ago, and you threatened to sue him for $3? That lawsuit? Yep. Heavenly days going to court for three dollars. That's silly. It's not three dollars anymore. I changed it to three seventy-five. You said it cost three dollars to have the picket replaced and painted, including twelve phone calls to get the low bid on it. 
What's the other 75 cents for? Mental anguish, Tootsie. All good lawyers throw in a little extra for mental anguish. Remember how I rolled and tossed and couldn't get to sleep the night that picket got busted? Yes, and I remember that fantastic peanut butter and onion sandwich you ate at bedtime, too. Mm -hmm. You were anguished, all right, but I don't think it was mental. Well, never the same. I'm suing for three seventy-five. I hope I didn't forget any books. I made out a list of the books I wanted to get and then left at home. That helps. Yeah, that, here, read it off, will you? Let me check it. See if I forgot anything. Well, let's see. Webster's courtroom procedure. Got it. Darrow on beating the rap. Right. Left courts, law for the layman. Got it. Ritter's writs of replevin. That's this one. And Schwartz's torts. Doggone it, I knew I was forgetting something. I want to stop at Schwartz's bakery and get some lemon torts. Oh, well, I'll get along without them. My goodness, you've got enough law stacked on the table here to open an office with. Well, I want to be prepared. I got to organize my case and prepare my brief. No good lawyer would think of going to court without his briefs. Not in this cold weather, anyhow. Yeah. <clears throat> in the case of McGee versus Bates for busting the fence picket, I shall prove willful and elegant malfeasance and non-corpus delecti, which means he done it and he's got to pay. Yeah, but McGee, he admitted he did it, and he offered to pay for it. That was after he heard I was going to sue him. He broke that fence picket a month ago, and he didn't come here to pay for it till last Wednesday. Well, the way you scared the poor man that day, waving that broken picket at him and daring him to step on your property, it's a wonder he came back at all. I'm sorry, my dear, but the legal machinery is already turning the wheels of justice. As we lawyers say, sick transit Gloria Monday. Meaning what? Means Gloria got sick on the streetcar Monday. I don't know what that's got to do with the lawsuit, but all them lawyers talk that way, and I don't know why... Doctor boy! Oh, here we go. Just let me try to concentrate on... Oh, some... there, kid. Hi, daughter. Hi, Johnny. Need anything at the store today? Yes, I'm glad you stopped by. I need some butter and a dozen eggs. How about some tamales, kid? No, I don't think so. Got a special on today. Fifteen dollars a gross. No, no, just butter and eggs, she said. Minced clams? How about some minced clams? You don't order minced clams like you used to anymore. We never did order minced clams. I mince my own. Oh, I guess that's right. I must have you confused with the Delaney's. Yeah, well, now, I'm trying to work here, so if you You don't... folks look a little like the Delaney's, Johnny. Yeah? She's shorter, of course, and he's got a mustache. Or, no, he's the one that's shorter, and she's got the mustache. <laughs> Say, how about some fruit, kids? Got some nice grapefruit in today, real fresh. All right, we'll take some grapefruit. Put us down for three. You better take nine, daughter. You may have to throw five or six of them away to get a good one. I thought you said they just arrived this morning. Yep, all the way from Florida, Johnny. You know what a long trip that is. Oh, sure. The way they bounce them crates around. All start... right, all right, all right. Make it nine. Now, look. Nine? Is it that late already? I got to get back to work, kids. Sorry I haven't got time to take your order, daughter, but you just phone it in. I'll bring it in tomorrow. <laughs> Lock that back door, will you? I got to study my law. I'm going to prepare an opening speech that'll make courtroom history today. Mm -hmm. As the immortal Gladstone once said, my dear, this suit is in the bag. Back to Wistful Vista in a minute. Hello, I'm your Richard Hudnut beauty advisor with news about a home permanent that lets you curl your hair to suit yourself. It's the new Richard Hudnut home permanent. And it gives you exactly the kind of wave or curl you happen to want. You get a choice of three different waving and drying methods. And exclusive Beauty Rinse Neutralizer assures you best results no matter which method you use. For instance, if you like a casual hairdo, use the Richard Hudnut Pin Curl Method. If you want a deeper, firmer wave, follow the Richard Hudnut Salon Method. 
or for a step-saving way to get nice springy curls, try the Richard Hudnut On Curler Method. You'll find the easy directions for all three methods right inside the new Richard Hudnut Home Permanent Package. So you really can curl your hair to suit yourself. Just remember, it's the new Richard Hudnut Home Permanent, the only wave in the world with Beauty Rinse Neutralizer that gives you best results no matter which method you use. Seems to me if you just told the judge the simple facts instead just of... Just the simple facts? Don't be naive, my dear. I can see you're not very familiar with courtroom procedure. I'm happy to say. Allow me to quote to you a passage from Daniel Webster's speech to the jury in the case of Webster versus Jones. For stealing a dictionary, I suppose. Well, I don't know, but it's the technique them great lawyers use that interests me, kiddo. Listen to this. Advancing to the bar of justice, Mr. Webster nodded to the jury, and taking a silver snuff box from his waistcoat, he graciously offered the judge a pinch of snuff. Oh, dear. Hey, we got a silver snuff box. That's them little things that win a case. No, dearie, no. We're fresh out of snuff boxes. Mm. I'll bring along a pillbox full of aspirin, though. I have a hunch the judge might appreciate an aspirin. Ah, when I step up before that court and swing into my opening speech, I'll have that courtroom spellbound. Your Honor, I'll say, in the words of that great American Patrick Henry, what time is it, Tootsie? We better start downtown. There it is, small claims court, down at the end of the hall there. Did you bring the speech? Of course I brought my speech. Will I come all the way down here to the court and leave my speech at home? It's right here in my... No, it's in the inside pocket of my... Oh, oh, I know where it is. You left it at home. No, I didn't leave it at home. My gosh, Molly, sometimes the way you talk, you'd think I was a six-year-old kid or something. Here's my speech. Right where you pinned it, inside my overcoat. Well, that's a good boy. I'm glad you didn't lose it. Stop patting me on the head. People are looking. Come on, let's go in the courtroom. Well, now, let's sit down here till they call your case. I hope we're not late, because the notice said 4 o'clock, and I don't want... Next case, Fibber McGee versus Oliver Bates, property damage. That's you, dearie. McGee versus Bates. Are the parties to this suit in the courtroom? Here, Your Honor. Fibber McGee representing the plaintiff in the case of McGee versus Bates, wherein said Bates, the accused, did inflict three bucks worth of damage to said McGee... That'll do, McGee. You'll get your turn. The plaintiff rests. A very smart move. If he ever hits you with that wooden hammer... Is Mr. Bates here? Here, Your Honor. I'm very sorry to have caused you this trouble. I don't like to take up your time. I didn't mean to break his fence, and I want to pay him for it. He won't let me pay him. Is this true, Mr. McGee? Well, Your Honor, the confessed criminal did come over with the money, but that was weeks after the damage was done. Well, he scared me, Your Honor. The day I broke the fence, he came running out and yanked the picket off and swung it at me. I ran. All right, let's hear both sides of this case in an orderly fashion. Mr. McGee, give me your version of this incident. What happened? Your Honor, I stand before you today to plead the cause of simple justice. Never mind that, Jess. The accuser did herewith snag his coat sleeve on a nail of my fence, thus tearing the picket off and damaging it three dollars worth. In the words of that great American, Patrick Henry, three bucks is a small price to pay for liberty. And if he don't pay me three bucks, take away his liberty and lock him up because... Sit down. I thank you. Holy smoke, one of those again, Joe. All right, Mr. Bates, maybe you can tell me what happened. 
Well, Your Honor, I, I was cutting through the alley back of Mr. McGee's house, and I caught my coat sleeve on a nail, like he says, and pulled the picket loose. Here, I'll show you how I tore my coat. You, you, you see there, that big rip? I object. Quiet. Plaintive rests. Hush, dearie. Shh. Go ahead, Mr. Bates. Well, I don't like to damage people's property, Your Honor, so I took a rock and I tried to hammer the nail back in, but... I guess I just hammered too hard because I split the fence picket all to pieces. It cost you three dollars to repair the fence, Mr. McGee. That is correct, Your Honor. Plus 75 cents for mental anguish. Hush, dearie. I don't like the look on his gavel. Hmm? All right. I've heard both sides here. If you'll both stand, the court will give its decision. Y yes, Your Honor. If Your Honor pleases, before you pass sentence on this confessed fence breaker, I'd like to make a few remarks. Unpin my speech out of my coat, Molly. Yes, but dearie... Quiet. It's the decision of this court that you, Mr. Bates, pay Mr. McGee the three dollars damages which you admit causing to his fence. I accept. And in closing, I would like to quote that great American, Benjamin Disraeli, who upon... May I just finish quoting me first, Mr. McGee? Go right ahead, Your Honor. Thank you. You, McGee, for neglecting to repair said fence and for leaving a nail projecting in such a manner as to cause this tear to Mr. Bates' coat. The court orders you to pay him the sum of $5 to repair said damage. What? Me pay him? You haven't heard my speech yet. I got a few remarks. Next case. Huh? Pay the $5, dearie, and let's get out of here. <laughs> Fibber and Molly will be right back. Thursday evening is filled with fun when you set your radio dial to this same station. And when we talk about fun, you'll find the best of it each week on Tooth or Consequences, the zany stunt games that keep all America intrigued each time Ralph Edwards steps before the NBC microphones. The unusual is commonplace when it's time for Tooth or Consequences, and the resultant fun makes wonderful radio entertainment. So be sure to be in the audience tomorrow and every Thursday evening when Ralph Edwards presents America's favorite party game, Truth or Consequences. Also Thursday, you'll hear the best Western adventure and songs from the Double R Bar Ranch on the Roy Rogers Show. 30 minutes of top entertainment presented by Roy, Dale Evans, Pat Brady, and the Whippoorwills. And then stay tuned for Father Knows Best with Robert Young in the title role. As the beleaguered head of the Anderson household, Robert Young finds more times than not that Father Knows Best about only one thing, trouble. But it's all in fun and it's all for fun. Be sure to hear Father Knows Best tomorrow evening. This is a message to Guam, to radio station KUAM, which has just begun operation this week. We join the National Broadcasting Company in welcoming KUAM to the network as NBC's newest and most westerly affiliate. Seems like this ought to call for a speech, Molly. I got a swell 30-minute speech here that I didn't get to make in the courtroom today. Wonder if I ought to make no, a... No, McGee. The plaintiff rests. Good night. Good night, all. and Richard Hudnut, makers of the all-new Richard Hudnut Home Permanent with Beauty Rinse Neutralizer, have brought you the Fibber McGee and Molly program transcribed, with Bill Thompson as the old-timer, Ken Christie as the judge, and Barley Bear as Mr. Bates. This is John Wald, inviting you to be with us again tomorrow night for another visit with Fibber McGee and Molly. Tomorrow night, enjoy the Roy Rogers Show on the NBC Radio Network.
That's a quarter-hour episode of Fibber, McGee, and Molly from January 27, 1954. Jim and Marion Jordan starring. That was sponsored by Richard Hudnut Furniture. Remember Hudnut Furniture? Do you remember I that at all? I do not. No, yeah, do you? I, I do. I think we might have had Hudnut Furniture back when I was Hudnut a kid. Furniture. Yeah, Richard mm-hmm. Hudnut. I'll have to check that out, though. Richard Hudnut. It's a crazy name for a furniture <laughs> <It is>. store. <laughs> it is. I wonder if they're around anymore. I don't think so. Maybe they changed their name. <laughs> Possibly. You know, next week we'll have the uh, the next uh, episode in the in the right. series of Fibber, McGee, and Molly here. All right, let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. Next week on WGN Radio Theater, we will be back at 10 p.m. with eight more classic radio shows. We have Have Gun, Will Travel, The Charlie McCarthy Show, The Man Called X, Casey, Crime Photographer, The Jack Benny Program, Suspense, The Adventures of Ellery Queen, and a 15-minute episode of Fibber McGee and Molly. I want to thank everyone listening. Uh, thanks for tuning us in. Mike Estella, our executive producer. Thank you, Lisa, and we'll see you all next week.